Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Emma Stoy. And we're going straight to the heart of the matter with a story about modelling drugs in hearts that don't even exist, Emma. Scientists in the US have created a completely computer-generated model of the human heart that can successfully predict the effects of drugs used to treat arrhythmia. Now, arrhythmia, or irregular heartbeat, results from abnormal electrical activity in the heart, and the drugs that use to treat it act on the heart cell membrane channels to alter the flow of charged molecules called ions, which are what cause the electrical signals in the first place. And worryingly, if they're used at the wrong concentrations, these drugs actually make arrhythmia worse or can even lead to sudden cardiac death in patients. So it's really important to test them thoroughly to determine the doses at which they're actually safe to use. Now, traditional methods of testing, which involve using animal hearts or looking at human clinical data, are incredibly inefficient. So researchers at the University of California have come up with a completely different approach, a computerised model of the human heart. Now, in the model, mathematical equations represent the opening and closing of ion channels in individual cell membranes. Other equations connect these events among single cells in order to simulate the whole heart. So you can then sort of mathematically feed drugs into this framework and test their effects. So they tested the effects of two widely used antiarrhythmic drugs, that's lidocaine and flecainide, at different concentrations to determine sort of what con- concentrations and conditions they worked, where they made the arrhythmia worse. And actually, really remarkably, the model's predictions were validated both by looking at clinical data and when they carried out similar tests on a rabbit's heart. And this is really, really exciting because this approach could potentially speed up the whole drug development process and help treatments get to patients so much faster. Now, I spoke to one of the authors of the research, Colleen Clancy, who said that they're now planning to extend this framework to cover more drugs and also investigating ways of scaling it up, and then it could be used to screen drugs. They're actually still under development. That was reported this week in Science Translational Medicine. Something that suddenly strikes me as could also be useful with this sort of thing is if you have a model of a heart, you could also kind of damage it. So if you had someone in front of you with some problem, you could then put that into the model and see what giving the drugs would do to them. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the sort of thing they're looking on. They're looking at more drugs. They're looking at different heart conditions. They're even looking to see if this approach could be extended to to other organs. I happen to know the same lab are looking at modelling the hippocampus in the brain to look at treatments for epilepsy and kind of because it can really sort of speed up the whole approach. It's amazing to think that you can do on a computer what would have taken, as you say, lots of studies in both animals and in humans in the past. Also in the news this week, the question of resistance to antibiotics is barely ever out of the headlines. We see news stories about this bacterium becoming resistant to this commonly used antibiotic and that one all the time. And so you might think, and many people do think, that antibiotic resistance is a fairly recent phenomenon. Actually, that's definitely not true, and there's a wonderful paper in the journal Nature this week to prove it. Vanessa da Costa and her colleagues went to a place called Dawson City, this is in Yukon, and they drilled down six metres underground, and they extracted core sediments from this permafrost that they were drilling into, and they used carbon dating to prove that it was at least 30,000 years old. And then they started amplifying or analysing the DNA, which was in those old samples. They could clone out DNA from old trees. They cloned DNA from bison, even mammoths. 
And so then they started looking at bacteria, and specifically they were looking at genes from bacteria which we know are linked to resistance to antibiotics. And out of this 30,000-year-old sediment came the genes which enable bacteria to break down vancomycin, one of our last-ditch antibiotics we're using today. It kills MRSA, for example. Also, TET-M, that's a gene which breaks down the tetracycline family of antibiotics. They found that too. And they also found beta-lactamases, drugs that break down penicillin. And to prove that these genes they were finding actually worked, they cloned the vancomycin resistance gene into E. coli, a culture growing in the laboratory. And they were able to demonstrate that this ancient 30,000-year-old gene sequence had activity that would be capable of breaking down this antibiotic today. And they also compared the crystal structure of the antibiotic resistance protein with the one that's used by bacteria today, and they were almost a direct match. There were a few minor changes, but they were almost spot on. So what they say in their paper is, and I'll quote from their Nature article, this work firmly establishes that antibiotic resistance genes predate our use of antibiotics and it offers the first direct evidence that antibiotic resistance is an ancient naturally occurring phenomenon that is very widespread in the environment and the reason that this is happening is because at the end of the day the the, the drugs that we use as antibiotics we just nick the idea from nature in the first place so is this actually quite hopeful because if we could come up with an antibiotic which nature hadn't thought of then nature wouldn't already have the resistant genes there so it'd be take much longer to develop resistance to it It's a good thought, Dave, but unfortunately nature has something like three billion years of head start over us, so I think it's a tall order, unfortunately. Now, on a completely different subject, tiny gold rods may give us unprecedented control over light. Light is vitally important, not only in our everyday lives to avoid bumping into things, but to our technology, ranging from transmitting our phone calls and internet down optic fibres to making computer chips where you actually use a process called photolithography and you make the patterns using light. So any improvement in our control of light should help us in all sorts of different ways. Now, light will travel at right angles to its wave front. A wave front is, if you imagine drawing a line on the top of a wave, that's its wave front. The wave will always travel at right angles to it's that. It's a bit like if you're at the seaside, the wave front would be the waves coming in towards the beach. Yeah, the top of the wave. So they always travel at right angles to their line at the top. Um, so you can now control this. Normally you can do this with a mirror or by using a material which slows light down like glass, allowing you to bend the wave fronts and therefore you can um, focus light using lenses or prisms. But this is very limited in what you can do. Federico Capasso and colleagues have managed a much finer control. They've managed to make tiny gold rods, or bent gold rods, and um, pattern them onto a silicon wafer. These are smaller than the wavelength of light. And when you shine light on them, you sort of get electric currents induced, so they slosh up backwards and forwards. And depending on their exact shape, it depends on the natural frequency they want to vibrate at, their resonant frequency. Oh, so do they, when they vibrate like that, do they give the light back out again? Because they're, they're, a current is moving up and down, therefore you've got a moving electric field, so you get a moving magnetic field and, and you regenerate light. That's right. They affect the, uh, I'm not sure whether they actually technically get absorbed and re-emitted, but they certainly interact with it very, very strongly. And by tuning the shape of them, you can change the amount they slow light down they've managed to make a thing which works like a prism but is completely flat so they basically um, had lots of different delays across a piece of silicon they shine light through it at one side it's delayed a lot a bit like a thick piece of glass the other side it's not delayed hardly at all so the light bends and it acts like a prism wow so that's like a flat lens basically and then in fact yes they haven't built one yet but you could in theory build a completely flat lens Um, another thing they've done is they've kind of arranged it in a circle so as you go round a circle the amount of delay changes so you shine 
bright flat light onto it and then the light coming off actually sort of spirals out. Very nice, but why would you want spiralling light? Um, it's used in various things. You can interact with molecules differently because it's um, spinning light and if it hits a molecule it would make it spin. It can also be used in things with optical tweezers because you have a little dark patch in the middle with really bright light around the outside and that can trap atoms, molecules or even cells. Oh, you can, you push around. things into the sort of black hole quite literally yeah, in the middle. stuck in the black hole and you can move them around. So that's kind of useful, but I think it's more a kind of proof of concept. And in the longer run, it means you can essentially shape this wavefront almost any way you like. And so you can actually produce patterns of light. It's more than a wavelength if they get it all right. Is the tricky part that it's really difficult to make these things to the kind of detail and resolution that you would need to shape the light in that way. I mean, that must be the hardest bit about doing this. I think they're probably using electron beam lithography to do that because an electron's wavelength is much smaller than the wavelength of light. You can make it very, very small, but obviously making billions of them would be very expensive unless you can somehow get them to self-assemble. But yes, we'll see how these technology develops. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. We're also in the news this week. Researchers from University College Cork and McMaster University in Canada have found that the so-called good bacteria, also known as probiotics, don't just affect the digestive tract. They can also affect mood and potentially have an impact on stress and depression. And joining us now to discuss how they've done this work and what they've discovered is Professor Paul Forsyth, and he's at McMaster. Hello, Paul. Hi there. So, first of all, what was the question you started out by asking when you were doing this work? Well, over recent years, there's been a real uh, increase in our understanding of the importance of the normal bacteria in the intestine, the gut microbiota, and how it influences a whole range of uh, physiological systems. Um, and what was particularly interesting in us was evidence emerging that these bacteria could influence the brain and, and brain development. And so we had been investigating the particular bacteria that we used in this study for some time, and we had demonstrated it could actually alter the activity of nerve cells in the intestine of mice. But what was really interesting, it could actually reduce the perception of pain signals coming from the gut. And we took this as a good indication that it was modifying the communication between the gut and the brain, and we wanted to explore this further and, and to see if we could actually detect changes in brain neurochemistry and subsequently whether these changes in, in brain neurochemistry might alter the behaviour of these animals. So the bacteria that go into the intestine in some way change the chemical environment in the tissue of the intestine which in turn changes the activity of the nerve cells in the intestine and you're saying that can be then propagated or at least you speculated that could be propagated up to the brain and in turn alter neurochemistry in the central nervous system. That's it. And actually what we demonstrated was that the vagus nerve, which has already been shown to be an important communication system between the gut and the brain, uh, was critical uh, to mediating the, 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 the signals from the bacteria to the brain. So if there was no signaling going along the vagus nerve, we didn't see the changes in the brain when we fed the bacteria. So talk us through the experiment. You did this in mice. We did, yes. So we uh, fed mice with a particular strain of lactobacillus, lactobacillus rhamnosus, and we fed them for 28 days. We then conducted a number of behavioral tests, specifically looking for things like anxiety. And then we looked at the brains of these animals. Um, we initially focused on the GABAergic system in the brain, and so we looked at rat receptors for the neurotransmitter GABA, and we saw changes in, in those receptors in the brain. Which bits of the brain did you look at, and which bits of the brain showed those changes? More critically, were they the bits of the brain that would be consistent with the observed behavioural effects you saw in mood, stress, depression, that kind of thing? 
We did. So we, we focused on the hippocampus and the amygdala. They have both been related to changes in things like uh, depression and anxiety. The changes we saw were consistent with the changes we were getting in behaviour, so a reduction in, in anxiety-like behaviour. So how do you know that the link in the chain was gut, nervous system, um, i.e. vagus nerve brain? How did you rule out the fact that the animals weren't just feeling better and healthier because they had these bacteria in their guts and that was impacting on their behaviour? What we actually did is we uh, severed the, the vagal nerve so there was now no signaling going from the intestine to the brain through the vagus nerve and we lost the behavioural effects and lost the, the changes in the brain chemistry indicating that the, the signal to the vagus was critical and animals that were fed the, just broth without the bacteria they, they had no changes in their, in their behaviour at all. So that's pretty encouraging, isn't it? It shows that there is definitely some kind of connection going on via that vagus nerve between the gut and the brain. You only looked at one nerve transmitter chemical. There are many others in the brain. Are you now going to go ahead and and say, look at some of the other, what we know are mood-related nerve transmitter chemicals and see if they also get changed? Exactly. I mean, we focused just on the GABAergic system in this study, but as you say, there is a whole range of neurotransmitters involved. We don't know the extent... Uh, of the changes caused by feeding this bacteria, and that's definitely something we're actually looking at at the moment. And what about in humans? Is there similar clinical data that it has the same effect when humans consume these bacteria in these yoghurt drinks and things? The studies in humans are are very limited and tend to be looking at reducing the anxiety effects or chronic fatigue and things like that, but the studies have been quite small and and the data is limited, so we don't really know what the effect of these, these bacteria would be on, on humans. And that's obviously something that we want to look at. And, of course, related to that is what actually are the bacteria doing to have that effect um, in the gut itself? And is there some other way of mimicking the effect, i.e. if you ate something different, would that have the same sort of impact on the gut as these bacteria do? Sure, exactly. I mean, looking at the bacteria itself, so what are the characteristics of that bacteria that allow it to mediate these signals? Is it something to do with the, this cell wall of the bacteria or is it a product that that bacteria produces and then how it transmits uh, the signal to the vagus nerve does this involve other cells in the gut immune cells perhaps or is it a direct effect on on the nervous system and then we're also interested in looking what's the nature and the change of the signal along the vagus nerve that mediates these these uh, anxiolytic like effects i mean it's interesting to note that um, electrical stimulation of the vagus is actually approved treatment for depression and so it's quite encouraging that it seems our our bacteria is acting on that same signaling pathway all right we must leave it there thank you paul i think it's very good proof that you are genuinely what you eat that was paul forsyth he's the assistant professor in the department of medicine at mcmaster university and he published that study he was discussing this week in the journal pnas now, uh, looking at what else has been making scientific headlines around the world this week, here is Mira Synthalingam with a new feature that we're kicking off this week, and it's called the Naked Scientist News Flash. Scientists studying how forests develop have discovered a new source of nitrogen that plants and trees can tap into, helping to boost their growth and so remove more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. By analysing samples of soils from coniferous forests in northern California, A team at the University of California, Davis, found that the underlying bedrock leaches nitrogen-containing chemicals into the soil, nourishing the plants and trees growing above. This source of nitrogen was previously unknown, according to Professor Benjamin Holton, who was part of the study. It was thought for a long time that the way nitrogen comes into our environment is from the atmosphere only, and especially 
by way of a couple of interactions, one involving bacteria known as rhizobium, and in addition, it can come in in rainwater. But it turns out that there's a tremendous amount of nitrogen that's in rock material. This is a kind of a new discovery that nitrogen actually is in the rock material and it's also available to forests and other types of plant ecosystems. This new source of nitrogen is released by the rocks as they erode, according to the group's paper published in Nature this week. More nitrogen, which is an essential ingredient for the formation of proteins in DNA, means that plants and trees grow faster, storing more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere as a result. The findings could therefore be used, say the scientists, to identify fertile areas in which to site forests intended to function as carbon offset schemes in the future. Using mobile phones to track how people move about in emergencies has enabled scientists to develop better ways to target aid where it's most needed. Publishing in the journal PLOS Medicine, Linus Bengtsson and colleagues from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden used mobile phone signals to follow the movements of more than 1.9 million people affected by the 2010 Haiti earthquake and ensuing cholera outbreak to predict, with very high accuracy, where people will go, in what sorts of numbers and over what time period following an emergency. What characterises a disaster is often total chaos and it's very, very difficult to understand where people are. Since we know which tower each mobile phone used, we could sort of follow each phone as it travels across the country. We could see that approximately 600,000 people left Port-au-Prince 19 days after the earthquake. So our hope is that this will contribute to making aid delivery much more efficient. A DNA-based circuit that trips and kills cancerous cells has been engineered by scientists at the Swiss Institute of Technology and MIT. Described this week in the journal Science, the new system looks for specific microRNA molecules that are known to be present at higher than normal levels within cancer cells. Once a threshold level of the microRNAs is detected, a DNA domino effect is triggered, causing the cell to self-destruct by a process called apoptosis. Although the team have yet to solve the problem of how to achieve safe and large-scale delivery of these cancer-preventing trip switches into a patient's cells, lead scientist Yakov Benenson believes the work could be a strong contender in the search for new, more specific cancer therapies. If we think about what would be the ideal anti-cancer therapy, so it has to be something that look at each cell and determine whether it should be destroyed or should be left alone. We don't have any good ways right now to do so. So I think our study shows how to look inside the cell and detect what's going on with the cell with high precision based on all this integration of multiple cancer signals and markers. And finally this week, scientists at the University of Leicester have developed a Star Trek-style sick bay that can non-invasively diagnose a variety of illnesses all at once. Co-inventor Professor Paul Monks explains how the technology can see, smell and feel disease. The first uses imaging technology, which has really been developed for use on the Mars rovers, to look at the colour of people's skin, for instance, to see whether we can pick up disease from that. The second suite of technology looks at the composition of people's breath, and from that you can actually tell how well people are. 
And the third suite of monitors really looks inside the body, but non-invasively, to look at blood flow and how much oxygen is in the blood and muscles and skin at any given time. Put together, it's the first time that you'll get this holistic measure of a patient's well-being. The whole diagnostic process should take just 15 minutes and will be based at the Accident and Emergency Department at the Leicester Royal Infirmary, which sees 150,000 patients coming through its doors annually. The system is hoped to pick up a range of diseases, including infections, heart disease, skin conditions, respiratory problems and some cancers. Liver disease, asthma and even MRSA are earmarked for the future. So what was once considered to be science fiction looks set to become a reality. Mira Senthalingam, thank you very much, Mira. And you can follow up on all of the stories that we've covered both in the main news and in Mira's news flash on thenakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.